This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare. <laughs> the Battle of Ideas, Eric Coppolino. <laughs> Here we go again. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. Hey, well, well, welcome. Uh, well, welcome to me. Welcome to you. So nice to be here. Um, what I, I want to start with one idea, mm. which is that the 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 technology itself is one thing, right? The uh, the fact that virology is now all metagenomics. There, people think of vi virologists as like working in labs and, you know, they've always got the test tube, the little, you know, the, and the little plunge droppers and the little, all this stuff. Actually, virology is going on inside of computers. The test is going on inside of computers. Pretty much everything is computerized. The new distribution of news is computerized. The movement of all the data is computerized, all this. But that's only half the problem. The, the real problem is what the exposure to these things over the decades does to people and does to society. So they're two separate things. So when I say COVID is a digital phenomenon, which is basically the theme of our conversation, I, I mean that partly by saying that they concocted their virus using digital technology, they told us about it using digital technology, they, they test for it using digital technology. They track and trace people using digital technology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But before they could do any of that, they, they had to have a converted b version of humanity that was so lost from its own uh, origins and sense of presence and sense of being and uh, its own welfare and, and essentially our bodies to make us susceptible to that. So I stumble onto this whole, you, you with me on that? There's two mm. things going on, the transportation angle and the transformation angle, borrowing the language of, um, uh, of, of, of media studies. And so the transportation angle is the thing people think of the most, right? Oh, we're, we're, we're delivering this thing in digital format. That's transportation. But what this does to people, especially if they're not paying attention, if they're not creative, if, if they resist the environment and don't do things that keep their mind actually engaged without becoming essentially hypnotic subject. Mm. Uh, that's, the, that's the problem. The, the technology itself would, would be meaningless if it didn't change us. It would just be more toys. It would just be more devices. It would just be a new record album or a new CD or a new you know, digital download by your favorite artist. Right? But the content, yes... Well, no, I was going to say, but what you're suggesting is that there's a, a tight, a tight link between reality and digitization then. They're, 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 they're intertwined. Yes, and we're always intertwined with the dominant media of our times. We're always becoming the product of becoming like the media that we use. The media impacts us. I mean, it starts with the alphabet. And the alphabet is the thing that starts to detribalize the human race. This is in ancient Greece. And as literacy proceeds and libraries are built and more and more people are reading, and then finally the printing press is, 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 is invented uh, around, around 1550 or something, the Gutenberg Press. Print technology 
transforms humanity into a thing that is no longer essentially tribes of hunter-gatherers and nation-states. It focuses individuality. It, um, it, it makes language uniform. Um, it uh, pulls focus on the borders between countries. One, one, of, um, one of Marshall McLuhan's ideas is that the, the borders between countries were always much looser prior to print technology, and then print technology forced the regularization of, of the written language, which made a sharp distinction between French and English, and between English and Spanish. And then this, in turn, focused on this extreme nationalism at the at, at being waged at the borders. But then, Eric, um, are, are these just mundane observations, or is there is there an actual implication that that could be good or bad? Oh, um, all of these um, all, all of these tools have their benefits, and they all have their um, drawbacks. But no society has ever known enough about what its tools do to be able to predict the outcome. And so it's time after time after time, particularly starting with Telegraph, of re releasing the genie out of the bottle and then just seeing what happens. And each stage of, of digital technology has electrical technology, beginning with the telegraph in 1844, has brought people further away from their individuality and deeper into tribal consciousness, destroying privacy, um, changing our concept of who we are, giving us the experience of being in two places at once like we are now. This stuff has a profound effect on our spiritual reality. We, we think, oh, well, this is how nice it's a phone call, just like on the Jetsons, right? Oh, it's where, where um, Ma Maxwell Smart, right? Get, get, you know, get smart with the phone and the shoe, right? That was funny at the time. Now it's, <laughs> I, mean, it was, I don't know if you remember this, it's an American science fiction series called Get Smart, well, kind of mm -hmm. detective science fiction called Get Smart with Maxwell Smart. And he had a phone in his shoe. Dick Tracy had the phone in his wrist, Okay, it's cool, but what does that do? Suddenly we're in two continents at once. We're leaping across the atmosphere, across the ocean, and I'm in South Africa, a place I've always wanted to visit, <laughs> and you're in New York, and we're every place else simultaneously. The, these effects are not really studied. It, it is, you know, the, the work of the McLuhan family is largely uh, observations and philosophy. It's, mm. it's tracking history, but it's not... Uh, there's not a scientific body of thought. It's almost immune to a scientific body of thought because you hardly have people who understand the concept enough to make a testable hypothesis. Further, the entire society is so immersed in the technology that there's no escaping it to be able to, in a way, isolate it. Uh, but there's experiments you can do, like whether you're watching a, a movie in forward screen projection or rear screen projection makes a difference in how that film impacts you. Whether you're looking at high resolution television or low resolution television has a different spiritual and psychological effect. Mm. So for example, right? Mm. Yeah, so, so I'm just, I'm, I'm getting an, a picture in my head here. 
Meta, for example, is creating a very devastating um, sense of reality. Meta, you mean the metaverse? Facebook. You mean Facebook? You mean they're yes. mm. yeah, and they're they're latecomers on this whole thing. Uh, they're these these um, uh, the, these um, virtual and enhanced reality environments have existed for years. They're just trying to use their influence to kind of grab it while it's still while there's a market share to grab, essentially to pop popularize it. Um, so we we are the problem is we are under the full thrall of virtual enhanced reality now, even though we think we're using Skype, a thing developed in the 1990s, actually the society is going to be uh, feeling the impact of the, 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 the technology five or 10 years down the road and acting as if that were the case. And so we are acting as if we are fully robotized inhabitants of virtual and enhanced reality. And, and that's a lot, a lot of the who gives a shit attitude, fuck everything, What's the difference? Who cares? So I'll take the shot kind of kind of attitude. Well, let's use that as a segue mm. into the last two and a half years. Yeah. Well of what of what people have thought was real. Yeah. And why do they think that? So one of the one of the uh, qualities of all of these media is to extend the central nervous system. Right, so your ear is extended to the, to this microphone, um, and t a TV camera uh, in a war zone rips my eyes out of my head and takes me to the scene. It doesn't deliver it to my living room. It takes me to the scene. That's why it's so exhausting to 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 watch it. Um, and and that is so intense that people cut off. They extend their nervous system, and then it's like ah, it's like the hot pot. And they cut it off, and that's the that's the digital haze, and that's why people don't become artists. The ones who become artists are the ones who are capable of working in the medium, of taking some control over the environment and participating in an affirmative, fully conscious way as an artist, which is what you are. Mm. Right? It's not just people painting and chipping away at rock or whatever. Photographers, it's, art is a state of mind, of. Um, you know, fully utilizing all all of the tools in a conscious way and not cutting off your your senses any more than a painter cuts off the tip of the paintbrush. The it's, painter is it's a, creating. Yes. Mm. So creating saves us. That's the part that saves us. Now, there's a lot of competition for that cr creating space, and there's a lot of people being paid $200 million to do what you do better than they do it. Um, so that jams up a lot of the frequencies and sucks up a lot of oxygen, but still we have the opportunity to participate. Now, it's all an experiment on board a runaway train. So there's really no telling, but I think that it is better not to go numb than it is to go numb. The, the, and the going numb had an interesting effect when you so I got onto this topic of, of like studying the the digital um, angle of, of covid. I stumbled upon it when um, I, I investigated. Well, my guitar guy down in the city, this guy, Matt, in this guitar shop called 30th Street Guitars, which is where you should bring your guitar or bass if it kicks conks out an hour before the show and he'll fix it for you. 
Um, he said, did you know that the Woodstock Festival was held during the Hong Kong flu? And I thought, that's interesting. And when I looked, I found out that 100,000 people were already said to have died before August 16th, 1969, when this concert began. And an estimated 450,000 kids passed through this farmer's field in uh, Bethel, New York, which if you saw it, you would think it was hilarious. If you sit where you are, you drive about two hours outside of town, that's Bethel, New York. And um, uh, and I'm thinking, this is crazy. The, they're all piled in in the rain and the mud in the farmer's field. They couldn't control the weather, but it didn't stop them. They just sat there in the rain and the mud, thunderstorms all, all weekend long. Um, and nobody seemed worried. So I, I contacted three different people. I contacted uh, the, the founder of the festival, Michael Lang, who used to live in the next town over in Woodstock. And I knew him from various different events and he read my horoscope column and all this stuff. So I wrote to him and I asked him if it was a concern. And he said, it was not a concern. Mm. And then I, I called up the principal photographer, Elliot Landy. Any of these shots you've seen, these high drama shots of Janice Joplin, Elliot took those shots. I said, what were you thinking about the Hong Kong flu? We didn't, it was not a concern. My wife and I didn't even know. Oh, that's interesting. So then, uh, then I called up the author of the book, Barefoot in Babylon. Uh, I wrote to him, Rob, Bob Spitz, and he was almost irritated. He, mm. he sent me back one of those snipey emails that famous people sometimes send you. You know, no, what was that? I'm like, what was that? You'd never heard of the Hong Kong flu? It was, it was, and I, I asked him because, A, he was a, histor he was a histor historian of the event, had never heard of it. Elliot Landy photographer, big time photographer. These are situationally aware people, right? You want to know what's going on. Just talk to a photographer. If you're someplace, ask mm. the guys taking pictures. So this was astonishing to me. And I find the New York times clippings from that summer, about a hundred thousand people dead. And I'm like, there is only one thing mm. different between 1969 and, and 2020. And that is that we are in a digital environment today. And we were in an analog environment in, in 1969. Right. So I began to analyze this, and it was the most controversial article I wrote about this whole damn thing. People were furious at me. Landy wouldn't even leave his house. He wasn't worried about the flu in 1969. But my friend Landy and I were going to the festival site, which I do every year, and we invited him and his wife to come with us. And he, I'm thinking, good business. What a great fun that would be. Bring Elliot Landy and his wife to the Woodstock Festival site? Yes. No. He won't leave the house. Why? COVID. Now, this is in 2020. He was so terrified, he wouldn't leave the damn house. Elliot, I love you, but what? So th this got me on to this train of analysis. Now, I, mm. it took me six months to figure it out, but that's better than not figuring it out at all, that something had so radically transformed society that in 1969, in the middle of an equivalent pandemic, which had had much more pu publicity and 100,000 claimed dead bodies at the time, nobody cared. Nobody even knew. Right. And if you had said, oh, there's a flu going around, they'd be like, pass that Coke bottle and who's got a joint? Nobody would have cared. They didn't care. And no one got sick. I mean, that's not a surprise now that we know what we know, that 
this shit's not really contagious. Or even so, real, or even real for that matter. No, no, or even real, right. This, this, there is no flu virus. There is no Hong Kong flu virus. This is, mm. the, the, uh, where I'm at these days is, is really shoveling out the bottom of that cesspool and uh, what, what, seeing what, uh, I mean, unmitigated garbage this whole story is. But regardless of whether it's real or not, people were acting as if it didn't matter in 1969. And then in 2020, they're sitting in these circles in the park Sam Bailey on her video has she put all these shots I sent her in of the people sitting in New York City in a little like an on deck circle in baseball there's someone decorated parks in the city with chalk circles so you would sit in your chalk circle with your dog and your friend and read your book and those guys over there who have a disease <laughs> and the next one well we're far enough away please and don't sneeze if, if you're upwind of me that's what's going on in 2020. When you put them side by side and you tamp down people's hysteria, you realize this is a complete transformation of society. And it wasn't merely that people were getting their information on smartphones that did that. Something had changed them inherently. Inherently, to not so hang out and just socialize naturally. People don't do that naturally. They don't sit in circles in the park. They, they don't, right? People move around places. So, I mean, know? what happened? I mean, how, how did this act? No, I know what happened. Let me rephrase my question. How did it happen? Well, right. So a lot, there's a lot of different angles to, to take. But I think ultimately the, the most important thing we can be looking at is the extend and cut off phenomenon of, of digital. The proliferation mm. of the technology did one thing at least. It exposed so many people to it that the effect was multiplied greatly. This cut off numb out effect was, was, was enhanced greatly. And when, so you've got a society that is numb, people are not feeling because you can't feel in this realm. Really, if we were sitting together, it'd be a whole different thing. Right, it's great hanging out with you here, but it would be different to, yeah. you know. And, your and dog sorry, walks so, sorry, Eric. Yeah, let yeah. me just interrupt you and go, go, go. just to add to what you're saying. It's so unreal that you need to use em emoticons. Well, yeah, that mm. that and that's going back to that's deliteracy. Mm. That, instead of saying I feel sad, you just put a little frowny face. Instead of saying I love you, you put a kissy face. Mm. So that's its own thing, and that's part of the tribalization, the using of these kind of hieroglyphics rather than, um, you know, you know, pictograms. Basically, is what emojis are, pictograms. Um, so there was a thought in there, and that was that. Let's see, we're talking about, um, ah, when. So you've got a numb society. You've got people who are numbed out by all this overexposure to this technology. When COVID started, what, what was sent through the entire network and all the humans connected to it was this jolt of terror, of imminent death terror, as if the nuclear missiles were going to land on your city in five minutes. And that registered as a feeling in a world without feeling. And then people reacted to that because they it felt real to them because they were terrified, immediately terrified and that became the hook that that terror became the proof that the mass formation was a real thing 
So the numbness was used, and, and then it was used a second time by convincing people to, to be cruel to each other and to amp to ramp up the fear even further and to amplify the sensation of um, the, the reality of it be as affirmed by the fear. It, it, the fear was used as proof that the thing to be feared was real. Now, this is a common spiritual problem, but we've never seen it on this scale before. It's ridiculous. Which is precisely why a lot of people refer to what we saw as, as uh, branch COVIDians or the COVID cult. Yeah. Well, mm. it was a cult, but the thing is that it was, um, there really was, there were different charismatic leaders that appeared. Uh, but by, I think by that time, the thing was, it had a life of its own. It was an automatic mode. You know, and people certainly acting culty. I mean, I, I haven't ever really seen a, a media analysis of, of a cult situation. But if you look at Jonestown, for example, mm. um, there there are there are similarities. Um, they first of all, they were all cut off. You know, they were cut off from the rest of reality, living in a living in a in a bubble. Um, and you got to be pretty numb to to inject cyanide in your child's mouth. Well, these days they're injecting the Kool Aid into their arms. Yeah. It's very similar situations unfolding, yes. And a, I think a valid comparison. But what's interesting, though, and I mean, you said this the other... <clears throat> sorry, <coughs> excuse me. You said this the other day to me, that it's all based on a digital sequence. And a thought form, but yes. The, 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 so, here, so let's go to the... Let's go to the transporting and the creation of reality by the digital. What most people don't understand is that virology is not like normal biology, where if you're studying peas, you have peas to study. If you're studying dandelions, you have dandelions to study. If you, if you take one of those dandelion tops, you know, with the one that turns gray and goes to seed and, and you sent, those seeds to every country on earth, you would grow the exact same dandelion, right? No problem. People think that's what virology is. They think virology is that advanced that they, oh, look, it's a virus. It's like, they think of it like a, you know, it's like, oh, it's a physical object. You can look at it closely. You can study it. It's like, oh, look, it's got that hole in the middle. Oh, look, it's got that little red thing on the top. No, the, the, the only reason they can say they have a virus is that they put a whole mash of chemicals and substances into a computer and the computer assembles it using artificial intelligence. It is a virtual reality thing. It is meta genomics. There is no reality to it in the biological world. They just cook the thing up. They just, the, com the computer script just makes the thing up loosely based on Nothing, basically, as far as I can tell, it's loosely based on absolutely nothing. But they can make it match other things loosely based on absolutely nothing. And they can say, oh, look, it's that kind of a virus. And they and it's as far as they're concerned, it's turtles all the way down. Then they take a little snip of that. They put that in the PCR and they test human beings for computer code. For computer code. And if you test positive after they multiply your sample one trillion times, 
at cycle threshold 45, a trillion times amplification, then they claim that you have a case of a disease. It's completely, completely absurd. But to believe it, you've got to be pretty messed up. And most people believed it. And look at where we are now. Well, now we're waiting for the next disaster to come in. Monkeypox. Well, monkeypox, but that looks to me like a diversion. Is anybody taking that seriously? I don't think anyone's taking that seriously. Um, what, 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 what else is on tap? I was watching stuff with the um, Hadron Collider with, with CERN. Are you following this issue? That apparently they're doing... So I, I, had, I only paid attention to CERN when it opened. I, I dug out my original chart and you know, we time the commencement of the thing and all that stuff. So that's partly what I do as an astrologer is a lot of this historical news analysis. So I had my notes from 2008. Apparently the thing is not really a cyclotron, just an ordinary atom smasher, that they're trying to open up a dimension. They're, they're, they're doing shit like South Park makes fun of. They're trying to open up a portal into a different dimension using this thing. And what happens if they do it? What, what if they somehow open up a thing that creates a kind of a warp in space-time? Or flips gravity off for a second, or what? So there's a lot of concern that they're doing very, very bad things inside that. And there's a lot of this stuff going on, and I think that monkeypox is largely diversionary. The nice thing about it is you see what a scam it is, Tedros declaring the pandemic when the committee voted against it twice. First 11 to 3, then 9 to 6. Only two people from the original 11 against changed their vote. So pretty much he just tried to pack the committee with more people for the second vote, and they still voted it down by an almost 2 to 1 margin. Then he declares the pandemic anyway. This shows you what a complete criminal the guy is. At least we have that. The term you haven't used is transhumanism. Well, right. So... We think of robotics as being little things in cans running around like Lost in Space or R2-D2 mm. or C-3PO. What most people don't understand that your, that, your computing, that your computing device is teaching you to be robotic by modifying your behavior to suit it. And so this is the first step of transhumanism. I also think the first step of transhumanism is any form of AI where you outsource your thoughts. The, the most ordinary pocket calculator is a form of artificial intelligence. It seemed like a good idea at the time. I mean, it's a great idea. Who wants to sit around doing you know, square roots or something? If you have to do that as part of your job, better to have a little thing do it. But you're still outsourcing your brain, and that's transhumanism. And that's what prepares us then to show up and get our software upgrade in the form of the mRNA software patch, vaccine, so-called vaccine, that modifies your genetic functioning and gets your body to act in a computer-like way, they say, and it also contains graphene, where mm -hmm. they in are injecting the read, read, readable, writable material into your body, compatible mm -hmm. with the 5G system. Now we're really talking transhumanism. Where did it start? Transhumanism, uh, digitization. I mean, could you argue that the the printer back in the what the fifteen hundreds was the beginning? Could it have gone back further? Well, so that is um, it is an analog technology, and and it, it is really the automation of a handcraft rather mm -hmm. than the automation of 
thought. Uh, I think that we begin transhumanism with the earliest iterations of computing devices called Turing machines, developed by Turing um, for, for the British government to crack the Heydrich Enigma, the, the, the Nazi um, a mechanical device, basically looked like a very fancy typewriter that would, uh, you know, they were using to communicate with each other. And the, the, they, they knew how many variables there were in the code and it would have, would have taken centuries to have people do the mathematics. But so instead, Turing created a machine that, that could do this. And he is the inventor of the, the modern computer. Uh, I don't know the provenance of the machines IBM was using to track concentration camp victims, but the whole computers have their first foray into society involving the Nazis, whether you're trying to beat the Nazis or the Nazis are trying to beat you. Um, and Turing, there's a thing called the Turing test, right? Familiar with the term, the Turing test? The, the Turing test is whether you, you sit with an android and you have a discussion and you try to determine whether it's human or not. Mm. And, and if it can fool you, uh, I don't know if it passed or failed the Turing test, but Turing, even in that early era, was thinking of these devices as a form of companionship. He knew, he, he knew that there, there was going to be a kind of a um, personality simulation involved in them. Now, I have not read any books about Turing, but I, I know this history loosely. Um, and um, there, there was a good film that came out recently. I mean, he was not treated well. I mean, he was gay. He was chemically castrated. He killed himself. And you, you get the sense of a lonely person who was thinking about these, these devices as companionship. And now that is commonplace, to think of them as a form of companionship. It's actually scary because the amount of reliance on digital seems to be exponential on a daily basis mm -hmm. yeah it's ridiculous we, i mean we now ask we, we we quite literally ask our phones for things yeah it's a little robot following us around but not just but it's not just getting the answer it it also propagandizes now oh yeah yeah i was talking to a client who paid for a service to have her business advertised when anyone came within so many feet of the business and a little pop-up comes up on the, on, 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 the, on the phones of people who are in the mall, reminding them to you know, get an acupuncture treatment. Yeah. And have, have, you, have, you, have you got an iPhone? I, I do, as a necessity. I try not to take it out of the house. It makes oh, no. me nervous. I've got all my authentication apps and two-factor authentication, and I don't want to be stalked when I'm driving around the countryside. I've gotten it took me two years to be this good at leaving it home. No, but my question is: Have you ever asked Siri if you want to get an example of propaganda? And I've done this before. Have you ever asked Siri um, if Black Lives Matter? <laughs> Listen to this. No, hold on. I'll do it right do now. It? I'll do it right now. Then, I, then, it, then it can come uh, If, if I do it, I'm appropriating. So go for it. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay. <laughs> Please. Ask okay, take, Siri if Black Lives Matter. Okay, take a listen. <laughs> hey Siri, do Black Lives Matter? Yes, Black Lives Matter. Okay, I'm not done yet. <laughs> wait, wait. Hey Siri, do all lives matter? 
I appreciate your interest in politics, but it's not a part of my programming. This is a good conversation to have with a fellow human. Wait. <laughs> try, try it on your phone quickly. Ev. Ask, ask, ask your Siri exactly the same question. I'll be interested to see what she says. How do you do this? Siri, can you hear me? Siri, can you hear me? How do you get? How do you get Siri? To hear me? You have to say hey. Side. What is the what is the prompt? It's it's hey, but I don't want to say her name because then my one's gonna respond. But it's hey. Hey name. Siri, can you hear me? Siri, do black Siri, do black lives matter? Yes, black lives matter. Siri, do all lives matter? You're gonna have to ask her again with a hey. Hey Siri. Hey Siri. Hey Siri. Can you hear me? Just ask her the question. I'm Do all lives matter? All lives matter is often used in response to the phrase black lives matter, but it does not represent the same concerns. To learn more about the Black Lives Matter human rights movement, visit blacklivesmatter.com. <laughs> Wait, I thought it was these people who stole the money and bought houses. Human rights movement. I thought three people got really, really expensive houses for free. That's so. That's pure propaganda. So it's not just outsourcing; it's also propagandizing. Well, and we're you know we're available to be taught in this fashion. <laughs> you might say. <laughs> we're like asking and getting the answer and it has this thing of like the voice of god the what? it's a disembodied voice it's the voice of god it's the disembodied voice just where is it coming from the fir the first time i ever really had to use gps which i i have a rule that i only use gps enough to know how to use it if i need it then i don't use it mm. so i've got some practice on it but the first time i ever really had to use it I was lost in LaGuardia Airport in New York City, like at rush hour, if you can imagine this kind of thing, driving around, and I had to meet somebody, and I knew, I still don't even know how this ultimately worked, but it there there was a disembodied voice. I said where I was going, and then a disembodied voice was like, turn left, turn right, take the ramp, turn left, go there, go there, and I looked, and my friend was standing there. It was freaky. It was freaky. I could. I was experiencing how freaky it was. You're thinking, well, what's so freaky about GPS? Yeah, it's freaky. Mm. We have no idea the impact. We have no idea. The, we have meek idea the impact and the implications. And when I started hearing uh, Quinta Columna talking about how the all these shots are are graphene oxide, mm. that the mRNA thing is merely the like story that gets you to believe it to use the shot in some way and really there's no there is no mrna or adenovirus or anything like that there's just graphene being injected into people and when you look at what graphene is it's the thinnest magnet it's it's a one atom thick molecule it is real nanotechnology so it's a it's a planar molecule it's instead of 
instead of being a, a molecule that's shaped like, I don't know, like this, like a three-dimensional object, it's really only a two-dimensional object because it's, it's the, 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 this molecular structure is just one atom thick, and it's the most powerful magnet. And um, it is one of the reasons why people were getting magnets to stick to their injection sites. This is a real thing. This seems to have the, the trends in the COVID era kind of come and go quickly. But when the when the when the injections first coming out started coming out, people were were were, were magnets were sticking to them. Mm. Um, Eric, this is just in the medical um, area, but where else is digitization um, being heavily impactful? Hmm. Um, I mean, I think if it transforms what a person is and what they think they are, it, there's nothing that we can exclude. Because it's not. Remember that 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 this is this is this only. Essence is. It's not exactly the effect, but it 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 is one manifestation of a of a different problem. And the, the, the fundamental problem, I think, is the change that comes over people, how they behave, how they think of themselves. Do they have an interior life? Do they not have an interior life? Are they curious or are they not curious? Mm. And so it has changed us into different people. This, this is the essential thing. It has had its effect already, basically. Let me ask my question slightly differently. Sure. Let's say... Um... Christianity or Islam or I don't know you name a belief system right do you think digitization has fundamentally altered the fabric of people's belief systems also well I think that to put it on a spiritual plane is the right one I, I think that it has completely altered people's concepts of who and what they are and where they are in the in the universe it's this it's had this anesthetizing effect. Um, it, it has the effect of, for example, converting you from somebody who might explore to someone who's just going to follow instructions in, 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 the, in the sense of um, GPS. Now, the goal of getting somewhere is just to get there. You're not supposed to make any mistakes. You're going to follow the instructions and, and get there with no sense of context, for example. So if we, if we, this is a spiritual issue. What I'm doing on the planet is ultimately a spiritual question, right? It is, and, and, and so this has moved into the central existential spiritual territory of what it means to be a person. It has been completely taken over by, uh, by, by every facet of this technology and everything it's done to us, including decades of preparation, we didn't even know that it was happening. So that was the game was over long, long, long before this. I mean, an example is um, perhaps familiar with uh, the September 11 incident. Mm. Everyone thinks they understand that airplane flies into 110-story tower and it falls down. At least there you have the appearance of cause and effect. Forget about the actual physics of it, right? 
that the thing is a column of steel. It's not just going to fall down. It would, would have stayed there and just burned for the next 10 years. But how then did Building 7 fall down? There was no airplane impact. It just fell down. Pentagon and also. The, what's that? There was also well, no plane in the Pentagon. There was no plane, but there was some form of an impact. There was some form of an explosion. Mm. It was probably some kind of a bunker buster missile that, that hit the thing. But, but the, to, to your point, to say that there was an airplane when there's no evidence of whatsoever of there being an airplane, mm. and, and to say that as <laughs> James Corbett, he, he, he comes off with some great lines, that two airplanes knocked down three buildings. And notably, one was eight hours later. Uh, the, the, um, the third building did not have any form of an impact. It merely fell down. So how numb do you, to reality do you have to be to just say, oh, it fell down? Well, obviously, like, at I least mean, with the first I mean, obviously, two, yeah, some, some burning paper can make an entire building fall, obviously. Th that's a transformation of human consciousness. Mm. Yeah, that's what they said. <laughs> An office fire. Like, wow, you know, well, why a logical person would say, you're not going to test every building in the entire city? Well, you mean that if, if I have a fire in this wastebasket, this entire house can fall down just from the fire in the wastebasket? So this is a transformation of consciousness. It mm. is lack of all curiosity. But that's the still fair to sorry, believe uh, anything. Yeah, but that's still... That's still fairly blatant. Okay, we can still bash that around and, and ridicule it. It gets very complicated where we talk about the reality or not of actual planes. I'm all over the place with that because I don't I don't know what is holographic, what is CGI and what is real. And that is a symptom of digitization. Yes. Yes. And the assumption is that either it's all real or none of it is real. Mm. There is no gray area where you sort out what that is. Yes. And I have, I'm not quite, look, they didn't pull plane wreckage out of the towers either. So where the hell, you know, has anyone ever actually like studied a Boeing 737? Like, do you ever, I mean, I mean, I'm a little kid. I'm, I'm the kid who's going to stand there and like, Look at the rivets and <laughs> imagine how much it weighs, 100 tons. Who's doing that? But it, it's not going to disappear. It's not going to disappear when it, when it strikes a, a building. And that, it, it, and that idea extends into more dangerous territory because you don't know anymore if you can trust what you see. Yeah. This is where we are. It's all the metaverse. And you just and and you when you think of your own life in that context and you think of other people in that context, th this is where we become inhumane. Which leads me to another point, which is that one of the effects of all this electrical technology is a disembodying effect that does not you know, you, no matter how much yoga you do, that's not going to save you from the disembodiment effect of, of, the, of, of, of this environment. And what happens as a result of the disembodiment is people forget who they are, and then they attack people to find out that the more disembodied and cut off from themselves people are, the more they're going to use a tactic like aggression or violence as a, in a 
poor excuse to find out. Mm. Um, Eric, and an example of that could also be more sinister. For example, the military no longer sending actual troops, but looking at a screen like a video game with a little crosshair on it and using drones merged with yeah. digital technology. Yeah, guy sitting in California, mm. like it's like a video game. It's like a video game, right? And but he knows he's killing people. He has to his soul, his conscience has to live has to live with that. There is a book called Ender's Game. Have you ever heard of this book? Yes. Did you read it? I mean, it's it's no. so the only problem with it is too short. You'll read it in one day. You won't be able to put it down. It's like three hundred pages, and they're little pages. It's about a seven-year-old who has this incredible skill. He he. It turns out that he has stupendous gaming and strategy skills that and there are kids like this that they they just know they know how to do it when they're seven this is ender and they recruit him into the military in in this on this world and take him from his family and well, along with a bunch of other kids and they put him in charge and they they get him into a place where he thinks he's involved in a drill a rehearsal drill but he's actually in combat but he doesn't know it he thinks he's playing a game like the rest of the games laser tag and this kind of thing but instead he's destroying these said to be bad invaders this is in the 80s this is written sure. in the 80s sure that's scary the complete confusion of 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 uh, physical and conceptual and uh, virtual virtual reality. Could we try, if possible, to find a positive spin? Let's say somebody is a paraplegic and their life is utterly miserable and they can't get around and the metaverse is perhaps a better reality. Well, this is the first pilot of Star Trek, right? Captain Pike is terribly destroyed. His body is maimed in, in this um, incident. And um, and he's, uh, this is the 60s. And he's he's kind of recreated in this holographic, um, holographic universe. So all, all of that, I mean, there are obviously many benefits and conveniences and to, to, to do this, I mean, uh, to, you know, when I do need a journalism tool, I mean, it's certainly convenient to not have to walk out of the house with the minicam, the tripod, the microphones, 20 batteries, every cable ever invented. Where I, when I, for most basic purposes, I'm I'm set with this. But that you, there are all kinds of positive benefits, that, that, and that's what we're. You know, it seems like it's just one convenience on, on top of the next. I love having a broadcast studio in my house. If I have two, it's so cheap, I can have two. Broadcast quality studios. Right, so I'm redundant. But that, um, in, in a way, that's like the bait. The pizza profile, you know, where you push the button and the pizza shows up at your door. You just push pizza one, and 20 minutes later, there's somebody standing at your door. It's convenience after convenience after convenience. But I do not think that that restores our, our lost humanity. I, I, that's not the thing. That's got no part of um, 
of of um, helping us stay in contact or or give, giving us a way to reclaim uh, our humanity. Is it a requirement that we must just accept and adapt? Perhaps. That's what we usually do. Mm. We usually just accept and adapt. And then the next thing comes along, and then the next thing comes along, and then the next thing comes along. And they're never telling you what it is. They're never really telling you what they're doing. They're, they're, they, they, you, you never know what they're doing. And, and like people think 5G is a communication system. We don't need a 5G communication system. You watch the ads for 5G, faster uploads. Well, who the hell needs faster uploads except you, for example? Do you need a 5G connection on your phone for faster uploads? You're the consummate content, video content creator. Do you mm. need 5G on your iPhone to no. do what you do all day long? I, I, I didn't think so. So they're, they're, they're selling you the convenience, but it's got nothing, nothing to do with the convenience at all. It's a weapon. But that, sorry, but that, that is by design. But 300 years ago, they wouldn't have known about 5G. No, and the and the question you have is when you you know you want to, you look at Gates and you you see what he was thinking and it's hard to know, uh, it's hard to know. They're mostly thinking about what they call innovation. They're thinking about making money. They're they're thinking about what their marketing team is going to be able to pull off, right? Um, um, I, I am, I'm sure that Gates was cut off from uh, this whole branch of philosophy. I'm pretty certain that uh, that Steve Jobs was not. That he knew that he was shaping consciousness. I, I think that Gates thought he was making devices and making a business. Have you ever read the Gates Wine? If you just look Google Gates Wine, it's an article that he wrote to computer hobbyists in the 80s saying, you know, you guys really need to stop pirating software. You're preventing me from hiring developers to be able to give you better software. Jobs would never have written something like that. Well, Andrew McLuhan saw one of the, I think I sent him the Lost interview. There's a thing called the Lost interview with, with Jobs. And he's not that nice of a guy. But anyway, he's still fascinating. Mm. And, uh, and, and Andrew McLuhan, uh, Marshall's grandson, uh, wrote back and he said, well, you can tell who read, <laughs> you can tell who read Marshall McLuhan's work from just watching the video. He was versed in the ideas. And I think that, he was much more of a conscious creator, but I think that, um, geez, I mean, uh, you know, when you, you study the history of Apple computing all the way up to the iPod, the, the company's practically failing up until the iPod. And they introduced the iPod and it destroys the music industry. But it didn't, so, though. But it didn't. Well, it, it did and it didn't. It mm. it. And it wasn't so good to to begin with, and other things destroyed it too, like the Woodstock Festival. Right. Uh, you know, creating festivals where you know you get a little money instead of you know you go on tour and you make a lot of money. Um. But it it devastated the status quo. Um. It it led to the distribution of mass quantities of low resolution music. The, the listening to an MP3 is very different than listening to analog music or listening to live music. It's like standing in fluorescent light as opposed to natural light. Mm. And not just that, it also ruined the concept of an album. Yep. 
Yeah, where you had to fit your work into 23 minutes per side. You had to curate very carefully and cut out mm. half your material and now, produce a finished, yeah. polished work. Exactly. Yeah, now there's no need for an album. You just download the song that you like. Yep, or you get, you download your album and it's got 30 bonus tracks on it. Mm, yes. <laughs> right. I was I was researching Fluid Math the other night, and I had the option to get the like the great band mega extent they crazy good uh, version of Rumors versus the like the original. I'm like I'll take the original. I just want to hear the way the artist presented the songs. So yes. yes, it's made things sloppier, and it allows people at the same time the same technology allows more people to to do that to to contribute. And funnily enough, by extension of that same talking point, the creation of music through digitization has dramatically changed. Uh, what do you mean? You mean the, the transformation from having your guitar versus mm. being able to, you know, pl play, Push. you know, play a song on this? Yes, yes, you press buttons. Yeah, I mean, and that doesn't really turn me on. I mean, I think I think music starts with chanting and drumming, basically. And you can't really do that on a keyboard. It's a communal activity. It's yeah. it's a communal activity, right? So, yeah, it's changed everything that can possibly be changed. It has changed. It changes the way we see, hear, feel. It changes the distribution of our senses. Here we're inside this thing where, essentially, let's see. There's a touch portion of it, so I get I can I touch the mouse. I can see and hear. <clears throat> uh, so it's three senses. Right, a book is one sense. You, you, when you look at a book, you, you're you're doing this very focused, limited thing of converting these strange little phonetic lines and characters into a universe, into a whole world. Whereas TV, you've got two senses going. Movies, two senses. So one of the things you study in media studies is the number of senses and how they affect how. The adding of senses impacts the ratio of the senses. What dominates? So we live in a an American society in a visually dominated world, which is a product of literacy, because literacy is a visual thing. There are other countries, cultures that are, are that that are still using oral, or oral or an AURAL culture, um, and and that's because that's their you know that's their foundation. They're they, they didn't develop literacy the same way we did. Then when you drop a television into the mix, that changes everything because suddenly mm -hmm. you're seeing and hearing and everything's everything's been rearranged and you have a completely different psychological response to the to the to the television. Woodstock was driven by the television. There at least in the movies, you were sitting in a crowd of people. That was the exciting part. And the directors all love that that, that mm -hmm. you get 500 people in the room. I saw a movie theater uh, in Brooklyn. Uh, I saw Tom York play play there, oh, and this was an old yeah, yeah, doing one of his digital acts with the you know like the, the it seemed it almost seemed like his technical crew is now the band, <laughs> basically, um, you know, doing all their digital art and light and sound in a room that would probably sat a movie theater that sat two thousand people back in the day. My dad lived in that neighborhood. I'm sure he went to the movies there. Mm. Okay, so now, now a movie is something that happens largely without an audience. Maybe one or two other people, or you're alone. Mm. 
it's a whole different experience. Um, in a, in a in a theater, the, the in, a, in a play, the actors are reacting to the audience. If if the audience mm. is sleeping, the there's not as good of a performance. If the audience is engaged, there's a better performance. Not so with the movie. It's been made uniform. The Godfather in Philadelphia is the same as the Godfather in New York. It's the same as in Chicago and in L.A. It's all the same movie. Yeah, but I think you're more likely to fall asleep in front of a flat screen than you are in front of a stage full of actors. Oh, by sleep, I meant metaphorically. Like if you're, oh. you know, if, if the audience is just dull and not responding, mm. the actor's not going to be as engaged in, in their work. They're going to feel like they're pushing against a kind of a morass. That's not a factor in the movies. And then, then, then the movies were made into a solitary thing. And notably, these TV screens are projecting mm. the image at you instead of it being projected from behind you. And there's one study in the McLuhan work where they showed the same film to two audiences simultaneously, one sitting on one side of the screen, one sitting on the other side of the screen. And their descriptions of the film were completely different orientations one was more mm -hmm. technically oriented one was more aesthetically oriented and they had just seen the same film at the same time only one was rear screen and one was forward screen that's interesting projection so who thinks about this stuff it's really interesting i think but i think a lot of things are interesting that other people think are boring but this is running our lives now remember when r2d2 opens up one of his special flaps and princess leia appears as a holographic image and delivers the bad news. Mm. And I have heard there, there will be completely synthetic concerts, books written by computers, music written by computerized holographic, computerized programs performed by holographic bands. Who the fuck wants that? Why would you want that? I don't get why you would want that. I don't understand why anyone would want that. So when we talk about staying in touch with humanity and not becoming a transhuman, you got to hang out with people, first and foremost. Uh, I think you have to know when your awareness is on and when your awareness is off, right? Because we're not going to escape this environment. You, you know, you go out almost anywhere, you're still being bathed in all the frequencies, right? But you can, you can certainly make as many decisions for yourself as you can. You can be conscious of your awareness level and where you're placing your awareness is a very important fact of being sentient is we have the choice of where to place our awareness. Um, using the, the tools as creatively as possible all the time. Uh, you know, not merely consuming. Um, should, actually, I mean, should, but actually creating. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a person who can't read a book without a pencil in my hand. I mean, really, it's like having one shoe and one sock off. If I'm sitting with a book, you will not find a book on my bookshelves that's not marked in pencil. Mm. I convert them all into notebooks. So all my books are dynamic experiences. I'm responding to the book. I'm underlining. I'm taking notes in the margin. The pencil and the book come together. And I suggest taking that approach. But is that what some authors want i mean don't they just want you to go into the world of fantasy with them yeah i'm not saying that i don't i'm not that i don't go there and i think i might read fiction a little bit even when i read fiction i'm still underlining mm. it doesn't 
it doesn't take me because I was studying how to write fiction. So it doesn't take me out of the uh, it doesn't take me out out any doesn't take me out of the story, really. I'm thinking about it when I'm not reading it. Mm. So a lot the point of a lot of this is to lull us to sleep and and numb us out and make what? everything seem automatic. What is your prognosis long term? I think we're we're going to go through a series of turning points. Um, I I never would have come out and said, oh, there's going to be this kind of phony, computerized global pandemic. Um, I am concerned about the events of the autumn and then the events of the spring. I think there's a a new maneuver coming, um, like a a new globalist maneuver. Um, it it upsets me that there are not more people who are questioning this, who are willing to participate. And I think we need to, there are variables in play. I am not sure if we are past the point of no return. That's that's what I'm writing about this month. I'm, I'm coming out with an article on Thursday where I, I talk about the, the point of no return where the entire society becomes the product of its technology. And that is apparently the kind of Atlantis tipping point. And and after the unimpressive show of of humanity regarding COVID, I I can't say for sure we have not crossed the tipping point. Uh, I you know, and I'm I'm not saying there's not there's always things that emerge and and that 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 evolve and and people can do su- surprising things, but you know. The 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 television era led into this digital era, which has just been one 9-11 after the next. I mean, un- unless you really have a lot of faith in God and humanity, uh, there's really no good reason to be optimistic. When you when you look at, you know, the first major event of the digital era was 9-11. And, and what, what did that get us? More global, give us a massive round of global tyranny. The expansion of the national security state, um, and there very few people questioning buildings falling down and airplanes without crashes without wreckage. So I don't see where the positive movement is, except that I've made friends. I'm I wouldn't be talking to you if not for that. So that's how I've always approached it, though. Every every disaster that's ever happened. I come out of it having made friends. So to me, that's just kind of a side benefit and doesn't, it makes it worth it. Yeah, that's a bit stoic, which is a good thing. What's the stoic part? Uh, You turn an obstacle into an opportunity. Yeah, well, I mean, I have to survive, right? I have to, I'm not totally doing the work I do on COVID by choice. I'm doing it out of Mm -hmm. a sense of responsibility and previous commitment. Mm -hmm. So, to, to survive in that atmosphere, in that environment, I, I have to have my fellow humans uh, to, you know, and I have to have fun with them. I, it, it, I have to love the work, right? So I'm, in, I'm the unusual case of a person who can't go to work at a job I don't like. I can't do it. I, I, you know, I'd rather, you know, spend my money doing a job I like than making money doing a job I don't like. Mm. So we need a deep change in values, I think. And and I think that, that there is so much suppressed trauma, then there is so much um, suppressed curiosity and willingness to learn 
I could suggest these are the things that will help get us out of this. I, I can't assure you there's very many conscious, willing, and excited people. And my other work outside of the COVID field, or let's say alongside of the COVID field, is what, as an astrologer, what I do is I'm talking to people about their growth and their development. I'm not making predictions or doing things like that. I'm, I'm engaged in with, with, with my readers and my clients in a spiritual development process. So I have some, um, let, let's say, um, areas to explore that are, that are not strictly just delivering information to people. And um, the, for about a year and a half, it felt like I was playing to an empty house. Like the, the whole COVID thing had so muffled my sense of my audience response uh, that I was very disoriented. And I finally feel like I'm, I'm getting my voice back and able to uh, com communicate with people again where there's some response, but there's not nearly the kind of response there was say 10, 10 years ago. And I get that other writers have more comments in their articles, but in my world, there's not really a lot of comments. There's not really a lot of, of, of dialogue. And I'm in a world where it is appropriate for me to talk about self-awareness with people as a primary part of what I do. Okay, if I wanted to find you on the internet, where can I go? Planetwaves.fm. That's my audio project and some writing. And then planetwaves.net. That's a writing project with some audio. So planetwaves.com is a Diodario and Company, the music store. Uh, so uh, we're, our neighbors are Diodario. We, we all stole the name from Bob Dylan. Uh, so planetwaves.fm is uh, where, for example, where the, this, this will go. The audio and the video will, uh, will go there. Uh, and then you, th then from there, you can link out. From planetwaves.fm, you can link out to the Chronology Project. You can link out to COVID-19 News or Daily News Feed. Um, and, um, and then all, a lot of other expressions of my work. I'm easy to find. If I ever don't write back in an hour, just send me the email again. I, I answer almost all my emails if I see them, certainly. Um, and I'm collaborative. I like to work with people and I like ideas and I like to try new things. And that is one of my strategies for uh, not having the, the internet be a dead end cutoff is that I publish my phone numbers. I'm available to people. Um, I asked asked for their involvement and their and their feedback, and so though I don't um, have a lot of commenting on my websites, I may I may have broken the record for crowdsourcing utterly brilliant people to help out um, with the with the with the uh, news, you know the the news and creative uh, pro process. So, uh, if you want to be a journalist, write to me. I'll help you be one. Eric Coppolino, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Jeremy. A pleasure. Were you called Germ before uh, uh, the, I, the Germ yeah. era? Was that kind of a nickname? Just kind of a when I was in school, right? And now you're born in the '80s or '70s? Uh, late '70s, yes. Late '70s. So you you lived under apartheid, correct? Crazy. I'm My here. name is Germ. This is Germ Wolfe. The Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.